thank you so much for the interview. Welcome to Banal of America Audio. Happy holidays. Out of that, a new holiday was born. A festivus for the rest of us. Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America. Last year, we had a very special guest on for the holiday episode, and I want to do the same thing again this year. Let's do it then, all right? back! And uh, as I said, it's the holiday season, so I'm thrilled to bring him back here for the 3rd, the 4th, the 5th, the 6th, the 7th, the 8th, the 9th, the 10th annual BOA Audio Holiday Special featuring Stanton Friedman. Don't bother me with the facts. My mind's made up, but the public doesn't know. I'm not going to tell them. If you can't attack the data, attack the people. It's easier. And do your research by proclamation. Investigation's too much trouble, and nobody will know the difference anyway. Well, you can always lay claim to the fact that I think you're the only person in all of ufology that has his own holiday special. So, you know, that, get that going <laughs> yeah, for you, too. Yeah, you're right about that. <laughs> it's the Banal of America Audio holiday special featuring Stanton Friedman. Happy holidays. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a very special edition of Banal of America Audio, a historic installment of the program. In fact, on December 11, 2005, I sat down with this guest and we presented a conversation for the BOA Audio listeners as sort of a quasi- Christmas gift, a holiday special, if you will, and we had so much fun, and it was so well-received that we did it again the next year, and then we did it again the next year, and it kept going and going, and this year, I'm proud to welcome you folks to the 10th annual BOA Audio Holiday Special featuring Stanton Friedman. It's an epic, epic edition of the program, very, very excited about it, of course. Folks, you've been listening to this guy on the show for the last 10 years, you you know his background, but for the newcomers in the audience, the books are, of course, Crash at Corona, Top Secret Magic, Captured, Science Was Wrong, and the one I most highly recommend, The Fantastic Flying Saucers and Science. Just an absolutely tremendous book and the perfect Christmas gift for your uh, nasty, noisy, negativist uncle that gives you crap about UFOs. Give him Flying Saucers and Science and quiet him down uh, for New Year's. And so with all that said, it's just an absolute thrill. I said before we started the program, I was talking to him. I'm still nervous after all these years, so I guess I'm doing something right. I don't know. But <laughs> I'm looking forward to it quite a bit, and I've been looking forward to it actually uh, for the last year and, and gearing up into the last few days, getting more and more excited about this conversation. Welcome back to the show, Stan. Happy holidays. Delighted to be here on this, well, it's, it's a lovely day here. It's about freezing, no snow. Uh, who can complain? That's about the best you can ask for. That so, yeah, I'll take that. Now it's been a it's 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 been an eventful year for you, and uh, you know I'd be remiss if we did not talk first about the uh, the heart attack uh, this summer. You know you had me scared there, man. I'm, I'm glad you pulled through it. Sounds like you're doing really well. Sounds like you're back on your feet. But uh, you know, give folks a little background on this. Give them an update on uh, what went down this summer. Well, okay, on June 27th. Uh as I was approaching my 80th birthday, the end of the next month, I thought, gee, I'll make it to 80 without spending overnight in a hospital. Hmm. 
That's pretty special from talking to other people. Yeah, that was one of your calling cards. And so uh, I had a heart attack and went to the hospital. And my daughter took me. She had just arrived. <laughs> Hi, Melissa. How about taking me to the hospital? <laughs> no, which is close. Uh, and uh, then I got switched down to the cardiac center in St. John, New Brunswick. We have one center for the whole province. And it was dull. It was boring. I wasn't in pain. <laughs> yeah, you had a heart attack. Uh, you got to go down for a dye test, but it's the weekend. And so, <clears throat> okay, they took me in the ambulance. That's not a great fun ride, but it's, uh, 65 miles. Um, uh, and we have a great medical plan here in Canada, so it didn't even cost me a dime. Nice. Kind of nice. And down there they did the dye test, and uh, they put in two stents, these tiny little springs. They found that two arteries were blocked, and uh, they inserted. And I didn't have a good seat for the performance, but they were looking <laughs> at a screen, and uh, um, you know they 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 do them about fifteen a day down there. Uh, and wow. uh, I was in a hospital for a couple more days, and so after a week out of circulation. I came back, and I thought, gee, now I get caught up. I didn't have my computer with me or anything, you know. Uh-huh. And then I got a, a worse thing happened. Um, well, I'll call it a hurricane. Arthur uh, changed its direction and hit Fredericton, where I live. Oh, wow. And it knocked down 4,000 trees in the Fredericton area. Oh, God. And we lost power, and we lost phone service, and we lost the Internet, and what a pain. And we had to throw out a whole bunch of food because, you know, after three days or so, they say you better throw it out. Yeah. It was a whole week, uh, which is quite remarkable. Uh, so that was more of a pain in the neck. Than <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, I don't know what to say. <laughs> you're saying that the power going out and everything was worse than the heart attack. So you're, you're, you're a warrior, well, man. You're a warrior. <laughs> it, it, I, I like to get caught up, and I was, you know, with, without the Internet and without the telephone. And, you know, it, so that was a pain. Interesting way to start the time period anyway. Uh, and, of course, I missed... Um, the MUFON conference in New Jersey, my home state. Oh. I missed that. I was supposed to give a lecture. Uh, and I also missed the... Roswell, right? Uh, Roswell event happened before MUFON, actually. And the doctor said no. It was, I was in the hospital, actually, so I, I didn't have a choice. Yeah. Uh, and uh but I am going this year to Roswell and I'm not finalized on MUFON but I think I will. Uh and I'm traveling uh within a couple months I had done several lectures and I put myself to the real test. I drove over four hundred miles to the Minster in Massachusetts for oh, a yeah. MUFON conference and uh drove both ways and uh not you know, there was a little time period in between. I should hope so, <laughs> the yeah. Conference, but, uh, <laughs> but that was the test. If I could do that, then I, I guess I can manage. And so, no pain, a uh, little less energy. I think the medication probably helps in that regard, frankly. Mm. Well, I, I got to... Well, I'm going strong, nice. and uh, I, I, you know, I have 
not expecting another one, he says. Of course, I didn't expect the first one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I gotta, yeah, well, I gotta give you some grief because I heard you on Coast to Coast and you said that when you first started feeling the heart attack, you thought it was because uh, you've been going to the gym and then nothing made me feel worse about myself than hearing this. You're eight years old. <laughs> what, well, are you, what are you going to the gym for? Six months earlier, I had thought, yeah, I'm in lousy shape. We'd been spending a lot of time going back and forth to Maine. My son had died and my brother-in-law's in trouble over there. And so spent a lot of time sitting in the car. And not exercising, not walking as much as I used to. And I thought, well, let's try out this gym thing. And I, I hadn't realized uh, all these zillion different machines that they have at the gyms. You know, you gradually increase the load and so forth. So I was probably in the best shape I'd been in for 10 years when the heart attack happened. Now, I'm not blaming the gym, but my doctor said, uh, no. You cannot go back to the gym. So nice. it, walking is okay. And I did a walk today, walked for 30 minutes at the local uh, University of New Brunswick gym. For anybody who wonders about Fredericton, New Brunswick, it's the capital of the province. Nice. It's the home of the University of New Brunswick, the oldest English language university in Canada. Uh Great place, a uh, mile and a half from the house. Nice to have a good library close by. <laughs> mm. uh, now, the other big thing that happened this uh, this year, you probably don't think it was as big a thing, but I thought it was spectacular. We talked about it when we set up the interview, but I want to talk more about it. I want you to tell the folks about this, how this all came together, and, and share your story, because it was so fun to hear you talk about it originally. Uh, this Bon Jovi pasta sauce commercial. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> that was fun. Uh, it's on YouTube. Hmm. People will, there'll be links all over for folks to get, to check it out, uh, from here. Well, first. it was kind of, one of these things, I was supposed to go to Pittsburgh for, uh, an interview about UFOs, of course. And a couple of weeks before, hey Stan, how about doing a commercial? A commercial? <laughs> yeah, well, we're gonna be filming around that time, and, uh, uh, for Bon Jovi pasta sauce. You know, Bon Jovi, the musician, I didn't, uh, I'm not a fan one way or another, I don't know, but Mm. but it sounded like fun. Uh, And I had lived in Pittsburgh, and so that that was a, you know, let's look at the old homestead, so to speak, and uh, why not do the commercial? I had a couple surprises. Uh, Pittsburgh has cleaned its act up a lot. It's a big IT town, not a dirty steel town anymore. Mm. Truth, uh, but uh, it, it was an adventure because when I got to the airport, nobody there to pick me up. Guy was supposed to pick me up. I went on PA system, uh, paging him. Uh, no luck. So I waited half an hour, and I knew where I was supposed to stay. So okay, I'll take a taxi, not that far. I get there. Oh, we don't have a reservation for you. What? <laughs> now what do I do? But they did have room. So, okay. And finally, late that evening, a uh, uh, guy contacts me and, uh, uh, okay, he'll pick me up in the morning. Well, okay, I was beginning to wonder that, you know, maybe this was a, a ghost appearance or something. <laughs> At least I had the air ticket. Uh, and I hope I wasn't going to get stuck with the hotel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, so... They take me, they, they surprise me. We looked around Pittsburgh, and then they take me to a little suburb I'd never heard of. 
and we're driving on the street with beautiful homes on it. And the studio that these people were using was in one of those homes and in the garage. <laughs> nice. Yeah. That was a surprise. What are they doing? Commercial business out here in a residential neighborhood, you know. <laughs> and uh, so we did it, and it was fun. And uh, it took half a dozen takes because it was a 30-second commercial. Hmm. And what they were doing was, which my role was to say, we talked to nuclear physicist, ufologist Stanton Friedman, and uh, let's see what which uh, style of sauce he prefers. Right. And they asked me the question, and my line was real big line. All of them. <laughs> which do you prefer? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was fun. I did it. I got. A, I've had a lot of commentary uh, about it since, because apparently a lot of people have seen it. I haven't seen it live on television, but uh, <laughs> but oh yeah, I haven't seen it on TV yet either. I hope they uh, they should start running it. I don't know what. Uh, if, I don't know. They what spent all the money making it. <laughs> well, it wasn't that much money. Uh, <laughs> We interrupt this program to bring you an important study from an undisclosed classified underground facility. We're with best-selling author, paranormal researcher, and nuclear physicist Stanton Friedman to ask which is his favorite flavor of Bon Jovi brand pasta sauce. The marinara, the garden style, or the arrabbiata? All of them. There you have it, Bon Jovi brand pasta sauces, the preferred pasta sauce of paranormal researchers and nuclear physicists everywhere. Taste the tradition. Now, tell me, you you got to relate this story because it's so funny to me. Uh, you, when you told me this story originally, the stage mom, you ran into some trouble with the stage mom after the commercial came oh, out, Oh, right? boy, yes. Uh, weeks later, I get a call from a woman who was angry at me. I don't know what you did, but you fouled things up for my daughter. She was going to win a prize for doing the best commercial. I said, wait a minute, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, you know, there was a competition uh, on that uh, a contest of some kind. No, I didn't know that. <laughs> and uh, uh, she in, uh, did a commercial, and the last two days of the competition, <laughs> excuse me, there were a whole bunch of votes for you. And I want to know what you did to cheat my daughter <laughs> out of this. You know, what What are we talking about here? I didn't do anything. Uh, you know, it, 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 as if I had spent the previous uh, two days calling people and going on the Internet and telling everybody, vote for me. Right, right, right. Just sitting there voting for yourself all day. <laughs> yeah, and so I, uh, I told her, look, I, I didn't do anything like that. Let me check a little further. And... Uh, I finally, I think she was satisfied, but uh, although she did tell them, she complained to them, too. Oh, boy. People who did it, and she did tell them that uh, there's no such thing as a nuclear physicist. And what? That was that was one of those, where'd that one come from? <laughs> yeah, that's just weird. Oh, well, my God. Well, uh, look, there was another strange aspect to that trip. I mean, the life of, a, of an advertising man <laughs> coming home from Pittsburgh. Hmm. I, it takes three flights to get there from Fredericton. It's only a third of the way across the country. <laughs> it took three flights. Uh, Pittsburgh to Washington, Washington to Montreal, Montreal to Fredericton. Hmm. Well, pain in the neck, but I get exercise at the airport. Well, the flight left uh, Pittsburgh a bit late, uh, 
and I did dash over to the other terminal at Dulles, and okay, we made it, and uh, get on the plane, and we start to leave. Uh, you know, I've got plenty of time. I'll make my connection. And uh, then on the PA system, well, we've had a little problem. Uh, the tug got caught up in the landing gear with a strap, and we need to get a knife to cut it. What? Hey, you know, where does that come from? Yeah, you don't want to hear that. Uh, so, okay, we sit there and we sit there, and apparently they eventually found a knife. We go back to the terminal and uh, getting ready to leave, and they come on the PA system saying, oh, we have to remove a passenger from the plane. Well, okay, they don't say why. I know some people probably think I'm making this up, but I'm not, and it wasn't fun. Anyway, a guy comes from the front of the plane. And it wasn't you. That was my first question when you well, <laughs> I was afraid that yeah, was Yeah, I'm wondering, what, what is this all about? And he goes <laughs> right by me to the back of the plane, and then he heads back to the front again without anybody. And, okay, we wait a little while. He comes back out again. He goes to the back. This time he has a woman with him with a headscarf on which may or may not mean anything. I have no idea. Huh. And he takes her back to the front. She seems to go willingly. I mean, he's not dragging her. And then they come on the air saying, uh, well, it's going to take a while to find her luggage, you know, which is down in the, in the guts of the plane, the yeah. Airplane, you know. So, okay, we wait another 10 or 15 minutes or so. We're finally ready to leave. And they say, oh, um, we're going to have to park a little while alongside the runway until we get air traffic control clearance to leave. <laughs> oh, God. And uh, so we do that. And by now I know we're going to be late, but I'm, of course I didn't know how late the connecting flight would be. And I finally get to Montreal, and I run all the way across the terminal because it's a United flight, and they're at one end, and Air Canada's at the other end. Fortunately, I didn't have any checked luggage. And I go all the way, and they get me through quickly. you got to go through customs and, uh, hmm. you know, immigration and right, all right. junk. Show your passport. Everything went fine until I get up to the desk to get my boarding pass. Uh, sorry, the plane's all buttoned up. Too late. Now what? There's no United person around. So I go upstairs, call the number that they give me, and the gal works hard. Well, I can get you out at 3 o'clock tomorrow. This is about 9 in the evening, you understand. And uh, I had places to go, and so I give her my special number because I'm a frequent flyer, a lead frequent flyer for Air Canada, and I say, you, you call them on this number. She said, I'm going to have to wait 20 minutes to get back to these people. I said, well, use this number and my frequent flyer number, and yeah. you won't have to wait long. And she did, worked her magic, and uh, used my number and stuff, and they got me on the 8 o'clock flight. Uh, now what do I do about a hotel? Well, I can't do anything about that. She's on the phone. Uh, no United people are out? No, that was the last flight, and you understand. And so I trundled off to two hotels. One was full. The second one, well, we can get you in across the street. Oh, God. Uh, and so I stay there, and I'm... I go home the next morning, Air Canada was on time, and I write out a, a five-page, I had to put the receipts and all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Fax it to them, and I don't hear anything for three months. <laughs> 
and you know, this is United Airlines. What kind of deal is this? You know, so it it's really I'm still waiting to hear. Oh God! Uh, but it, it's aggravating. You know what I mean? It, yeah. It's a trip from hell, as somebody once said. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, I, I like how you have how you travel so much. You have an elite phone number that that, that you can call to get <laughs> to, to bypass the, the, the plebes. That makes a difference, I'll tell you. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Uh, anyway, the the uh, excitement of a traveling man. Mm, yeah, yeah, well, it's amazing. The this is what this is this has been your life for for fifty years, traveling around talking about this well, stuff. Oh, I gave my first lecture in nineteen sixty seven. So what's that? What's that? Forty seven years. Pretty right. pretty close. Uh, and you know. Uh, I'm still, I gave several more lectures and I'm scheduled to, anybody can go to my website, www.stantonfriedman.com and see my schedule and go in some places I've never been and I'll be going to England and the possibility of tacking on to, uh, Denmark and Norway and I've never spoken there. Nice. So, uh, you know, life goes on and it's good and all right. sorts of things. That's uh, right. Now, it will be interesting to see, uh, I'm pushing, as you know, my big aggravation is the people who say the MJ-12 documents are all fraudulent. Mm-hmm. And I say, well, you know, all but three, and they're the ones that matter. So, you know, just the fact that most aren't, most people aren't seven feet tall doesn't mean there aren't seven footers around. Right, exactly. Uh, and I've hit all the arguments that people are making. And they're still making noises. Everybody but Friedman knows that the documents are fraudulent. So my next column in the MUFON Journal will list, I don't know, I think 11 specific examples of arguments that sound good until you check the evidence. Right. Well, you've been battling these folks for years. I wanted to just circle back a little bit to the traveling part. So I wanted to ask you, did you ever have like a peak? What was your peak year as far as traveling goes where, where, you, where you hit like a ton of stuff? I know you, when, when you talked about before the, uh, where you did like a tour where you traveled all over the place. Well, my, my longest single tour was, let's see, 25 lectures in 35 days in 15 states. And that's work. Hmm. I mean, I saw spring come in three different parts of the country. Uh, and as I tell people, you got to have a cast iron stomach and a cast iron throat. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you're on the go. Yeah. You're not always going big city to big city. You got to drive. You got to rent a car. You know, it, it's work. I mention this because. I've had people say, oh, you're so lucky. You know, I've given 700 lectures in 50 states, 10 provinces, mm. and 18 other countries. You you get to travel so much. Well, it's work. Absolutely, yeah. Where, where's the fun? There's no time off in there. <laughs> right, right, because you're in town for like a, let's say you go to D.C. for a thing. You may you may not even have time. You know, people are like, oh, you get to go to Washington. You don't really get to go look around or anything. You don't really get to go like visit the St. Louis Arch or something like that unless you take the time specifically to do it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, even when I'm overseas. Now, there was one exception this past year, uh, earlier in the year, in Brazil. There's an incredible waterfall. It's one of the world's largest. And the way the conference was set up, several of us, uh, Travis Walton, Don Schmidt, and I, uh, had time to go out to the, uh, waterfalls. And it was spectacular. Nice. 
huge. And so it was so lucky because normally I wouldn't have time, but just the way the timing worked out. Yeah. Uh, and so that was nice. But I'm not a big sightseer around the world, unfortunately. I mean, it just usually doesn't work out that way. Is there anything you like to do in each city, like get a meal at a different restaurant or something like that, or is it just all on the go, just, just do the lecturing? Pretty much all on the go. Once in a while, you get to eat a, a nice meal. And uh, I just got an invitation yesterday to give a talk in Washington, D.C., to an outfit that meets in the best French restaurant in town. Nice. Don't ask me to explain that. <laughs> so I'm looking deal. forward to that. Yeah. Presuming we'll have a meal if I'm going to speak there. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, traditionally, we in the last like seven years, we've been doing the the, uh, the the listener questions. But since this is the tenth year, I really wanted to kind of go old school and just just talk to you and and we'll save the listener questions for next year and, and bring them back then. So I didn't solicit any questions because I just like I said, I mean, we we've been doing this since December 11, 2005. So I wanted to kind of go all the way back and circle back and really sort of, uh, like I said, go old school. So I was thinking about it. You've, we talked about this. You've been looking at all this for the last 47 years. At what point over that time where did you, like, in retrospect, do you feel like we were the closest to sort of breaking through this whole thing? You know, do you look back and go, oh, 85, we were, we were so close, you know, because it's always like disclosures right around the corner. And you've seen a lot of corners in the last 47 years. So what was the closest corner uh, that you can recall? Well, I mean, there was that rumor that uh, U.S. was it U.S. News and World Report. One of those had an article that President Carter was going to break the story about flying saucers, and it didn't happen. Huh. Uh, that was a disappointment. Uh, there. I don't remember ever thinking that disclosure was around the corner. I mean, I you know, I was in Washington for that that big parade of speakers and uh, I guess congressmen have finally gotten the DVD of the presentation. Right, right. Uh and I wasn't really anticipating much from that. Although I I will say this. You know, there were uh six former members of Congress who were on a panel. Uh, I guess if they were active, still congressmen, they wouldn't have gone on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and I was pleased to see how by the fourth day, it was clear that they were intrigued. They started off knowing very little. Nobody had given them a real briefing. Uh, but they asked enough questions, pretty sharp people. And so I enjoyed that part of it, but I didn't expect because partly because I'm not one who says we are entitled to know everything. I don't believe that. I believe there is a national security aspect to this. Right. Uh, especially the technology end. And, uh, you know, I, I just read something yesterday, would you believe? The farthest out technology you can imagine. All these people supposedly have been transported magically through time and space to Mars. And there's a colony there. It's, it's sort of the Serpo story. Yeah, yeah, I'm familiar with that that little uh, meme. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I just read a new version. Uh, Alfred Weber is writing like this is all real. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, ridiculous. Yeah. 
Yeah, and the thing is, I like evidence. It, it isn't enough to tell a pretty story. I mean, science fiction fighter, uh, writers have been telling great stories for a very long time. Jules Verne, you know. Yeah, told. exactly. And uh, But they don't need to produce any evidence. Although, interestingly enough, I find... Uh, I talk my MUFON paper, which is in the proceedings of the conference, was about press coverage of UFOs, uh, an exercise in laziness and frustration, or something like hmm. that. But three science fiction writers, noted ones, are strongly anti-UFO. Right, right. And totally ignorant. That's Isaac Asimov, Ben Bova, and Arthur C. Clarke. And uh, that comes as a surprise to people. They sort of link flying saucers and UFOs. I just had a note yesterday from a guy in Hungary, mm -hmm. uh, and he was saying how he's very dubious. Uh, you know, why did you switch from being a scientist to being a UFO preacher? How's that? Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, wrong religion anyway. But <laughs> uh, And uh, he, he mentioned a famous, apparently a famous Hungarian astronomer who, long since dead, but who had said, you know, this was all fairy tales, uh, this UFO stuff. So I came on kind of strong to the guy saying, uh, you know, repeating my four basic rules for debunkers. Don't bother me with the facts. My mind's made up. What the public doesn't know, I'm not going to tell them. If you can't attack the data, attack the people. It's easier. And do your research by proclamation. Investigation's too much trouble, and nobody will know the difference anyway. Uh, I'll be interested to see how he responds to that. But <laughs> Well, you know, I get a little sick of this notion in the first place that most people don't believe in UFOs. And look, I've put that to the test. 700 lectures, uh, 11 hecklers, two of them were drunk, and the audience took care of the other nine. Uh, and I come on very, very strong. And one guy asked that we pull the audience. Well, okay, I did. More than 90% said they thought some UFOs were alien spacecraft. Uh, that's a pretty good response on any subject, you know. Yeah. So uh, I, I spend much of my time getting rid of the myths. And I uh, had to stress to this guy that I'm a little sneaky. I... Uh, talk about five large-scale scientific studies and ask after each one how many people here have read this. And I'm lucky if I get 2% who've read any of them. Right, right, right. People, I'm hoping yeah. that will keep some people shutting up who would otherwise blast away, but who would have to admit, well, no, I haven't looked at any of those studies, of course. But, mm. uh, so, you know, I, I don't like giving a public platform to somebody who hasn't done his homework. Unfortunately, the media does, though. That's the that's the problem. Oh, yeah. So you're always, it seems like you're, you know, thank God you're tirelessly going after these guys and sort of uh, breaking down their ridiculous arguments. It's uh, it's it's crazy. But the thing about people believing in UFOs, they definitely think there's, there seems to have been like a psychological shift in the public where I think they oh, do believe in UFOs, but they, you know, they accept it, but they dismiss it at the same time. They don't want to deal with it. They can't deal with it. It's, it's. I, I think, like, if you look, like, it's like back in the day, someone, if someone was like, oh, you believe in aliens, that would be like an insult. And I think we're getting closer and closer to a time when the guy who says that is the moron. Well, that's right. And one thing that I keep hearing over and over again, surely we're not the only ones in this vast universe. And I think part of that is the Kepler uh, findings that there are planets all over the darn place. Right. 
you know, there were a lot of people who said there weren't any other solar systems uh, not too many years ago. You know, you go back to the 20s, there was only one galaxy. Big argument in astronomy. And then Hubble uh, got special data which shows, oh, yeah, gee whiz, there are lots of galaxies out there, you know. Yeah. But today I think most people, uh, you know, SETI gets a lot of publicity, totally unwilling to look at the UFO evidence. Uh, I suppose because if aliens are coming here, who needs to listen for radio signals? And I tell people SETI stands for Silly Effort to Investigate, and it's worth a good laugh. And, uh, and, and it is, because it assumes that aliens are stuck at a technological level just like us. Right. So we're going to be able to sort out their signals and interpret them. You know, you have to say AM or FM, fellas. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it's kind of crazy. People forget. Uh, if they ever knew, I guess that the first long distance radio signal on this planet, thanks to Mr. Marconi to Newfoundland, mind you, uh, was 1901. That's not very long ago. The planet's been around for four billion years, four and a half. Uh, and you'd think that everybody is, is no more advanced than we are? I, I'm constantly marveling on how much we've learned. You know, go back to 1890. No, we didn't know anything about neutrons, gamma rays, x-rays, photons, fission, fusion, flight, DNA, radio, you know. Yeah. We're, 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 we're Johnny-come-latelys by any scheme of measuring. And, uh, and I still get some people who want to say, well, if they're coming here, why don't they land on the White House lawn? And you try to get people, hey, look at this planet we're on. What's the major activity here? It's military. Right. Uh, you know, we're not a friendly people. Our pilots don't wave at saucers. We try to shoot them down. Remember back in 52? Shoot them down if they don't land when instructed to do so, which is one of those silly things, if you think about that, you know. Uh, but... Uh, I've talked to seven people who tell me of situations that occurred at the military base at which they were stationed where pilots went up and never came back. But uh, all of them, it sounds like it was self-defense. I'm the ones where I can pin them yeah. down. You know, so, but, you know, does anybody expect aliens to treat us as equals? <laughs> of course, of course people expect that. That's the, pro that's the problem, really, at the end of the day. They think that they think that we should be on par with uh, with everything. That's I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't know. You know, as a human, maybe I shouldn't sell out the race as a species, but well, I don't know. We've we've gone we've come to a very special place in our understanding of the universe, and that we have figured out that it's nuclear fusion that produces almost all the energy mm -hmm. in all the stars. And uh, anybody who thinks about it, and I don't mean the SETI people, I mean uh, engineers and so forth, realizes that you can use nuclear fusion for a propulsion system. And if you do that, it's as much advanced over chemical rockets as an H-bomb is over a 10-ton blockbuster. And we don't, we, we don't want to think about that, I guess. That, uh, what would you say about this planet? It's a primitive society whose major activity is tribal warfare. What, what I just read last night, I guess I heard that, uh, a hundred kids got killed in Africa. Yeah, there was some kind of terrorist thing, yeah. 
Yeah, the Taliban. I, I don't know whether it was Africa or not. Yeah, it's a mess. They go into a school and they start shooting kids. Well, that's happening here in America. It's scary, uh, scary altogether. Oh, yeah. You know, it's scary yeah. altogether. So, you look at us and you say, why would anybody want to be friendly with us? We'd want to grab their vehicle the first thing we'd do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, how much do we have to pay to get you to help us build more of these, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting, too. I was thinking about it uh, going into this conversation that it's so frustrating because we really don't have any answers to a lot of these big UFO questions like why don't they come here? And I mean, why do they come here? You know, where are they from? How are they getting here? But, but when you look at it, I guess we can definitely say the one question that we know the answer to is that they, they don't want us to know about them and they don't want us to interact with them as much as Paul, like, they, they want to control the, they want to control, uh, the interaction if there is any and they certainly don't want us to know more about them. Well, can you blame them? No, uh, not I mean, at all, but. Do we act like a friendly species? We kill our, I mean, you know, how many kids died of starvation yesterday? Uh, and the day before, and the day before that, and the day before that. And yet we will spend a trillion dollars on things military this year. Well, it's scary because I, I talked to a friend of mine. He's a, a friend of mine's father. He's an MIT professor, actually, uh, and he oh. he works with the Kepler data. We'll have to talk sometime off the air more about it. But uh, I asked him about UFOs and aliens and all that, and he, he seemed really – he seemed kind of in a way – it mirrors what you're saying, but on an even more darker level, because he, he seemed to really be pessimistic that, that you know, a technologically advanced species could even get it together to, to be traveling around like that, like like looking at just our race. Maybe he's pessimistic about the human race, but still, it's it's like, you know, could, can we ever really even get it together to, to become aliens to some other race, or are we going to blow ourselves up before that happens? Well, the interesting question, if we, if we could go to the galactic archives is what percentage of the civilizations that finally get to the point where they know how their sun operates, you know, the primary source of energy in all solar systems is clearly their star. Uh, how many of those that get to that point uh, manage to stay healthy? That is, you know, not destroy themselves. Yeah. I mean, people don't realize how close we came, uh, if you look at the history of the Cold War, we were lucky to get through that. And they also don't realize we exploded 2,000 nuclear weapons. Not two on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Well, there were two there. But, I mean, uh, 2,000 other ones. A demonstration, testing, etc. And from the big countries to the small one. I mean, Korea uh, is an example. Hmm. It is truly remarkable that we and the Russians didn't get uh, into a war. And I, I'll never forget, I, I, I'd love to follow this up sometime, heard a Russian general on a radio program saying that uh, they had assassinated Stalin in 53. And it was one of those things that he he was going to go to war. And the Russians lost more than 20 million people in the war. Yeah. And I took a trip, my wife and I took a tour of uh, the countries, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, the Baltic countries, and Russia. And when you, you figure out, how did the Russians stand off the Germans in 42? They lost over a million people there. 
But if they hadn't delayed the Germans, they'd have been already on the Western Front when we attacked. Yeah. It might have gone the other way. And, you know, especially if we hadn't broken the uh, the codes. And, you know, there, there's another area that really irks me that people don't understand how how much classified work has gone on. They think R&D is what goes on at universities and no place else. You know, and just just to name a couple, the Ultra Project, the breaking of the German codes, and then eventually the Japanese codes as well. That was extraordinarily important hmm. for winning the war. Uh because it's nice to know where the other guy's ships are going, where his submarines are going, where his airplanes are going. I mean, that gives you a real leg up. You know, it may not give you another bullet, but the element of surprise gets taken away, and that that's very useful. Yeah. And what people don't realize, the fact that we had broken the codes wasn't made public until 25 years after the war. We well, can't keep secrets. There were 12,000 people at Bletchley Park in England involved in that. Not one word in public. Of course we can keep secrets. Well, I think people should realize that just by the, by the whole Snowden thing and the spying and all the revelations that came out of that. I mean, I'm sure I, you would think that that would change the public perception in a way about whether the government can keep secrets or not. Cause it, it's like. Yeah, but not the ancient academics and fossilized physicists who insist that the government can't keep secrets, you see. Hmm. Uh, yeah, well, I, I've told you before that, uh, uh, dear old Dr. Tyson said the proof that the government can't keep secrets is how much we know about President Clinton's genitalia, which is one of those lines that will forever be etched in history as utterly absurd. And they don't think, well, uh, Operation Solarium is another example, which most people have never heard of. Yeah, I've never heard of this. In 1953, new President Eisenhower was very much concerned about whether we were going to keep just spending more money on arms in the Cold War. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the Berlin Wall and uh, right, it was escalating going on. Yeah. And, uh, so he set up three separate teams of people in great secrecy whose job it was to look at one of the three possibilities for containment. And uh, it was a major effort. It was done in complete secrecy. They had a cover story what these guys were doing. And they finally worked out a way to be other than just more arms and more arms to threaten each other. And uh, it wasn't its very existence wasn't made public until the late 80s, 25 years later, again. Wow. Uh, and it was a major effort. I mean, we're talking about dozens of big people, expensive people involved yeah. in this. You know, uh, the uh, atomic bomb project, of course, was a major effort. Uh, but there have been numerous other large-scale programs spending tons of money which were not done in academia. Uh, and people just don't seem to understand this. Mm. Uh, that governments can keep secrets. Now, keeping a secret doesn't mean that everybody in government knows them and us. You know, right, right. If you're in government or not, and if you're in government, you know what's going on. The uh, 
during the breaking of the Ultra Code, the Enigma machine, you know, all that whole story, there were four people who knew what was going on. It was very compartmentalized. Yeah. Loads of people working on it. Like I say, 12,000 at Fletchley Park who had to interpret and decode and uh, transcribe and quietly distribute. Because the key thing was nobody could find out that we'd broken the code or the Germans would change it. Right, right, right. And that would be disastrous. Uh, and so uh, four guys knew what was going on. So it's not that you tell everybody and hope nobody talks, is you tell almost nobody. Exactly. And, uh, you know, well, the spy, first spy satellite, the Corona spy satellite. Corona as in Corona, New Mexico. Which That's right, yeah. The Roswell crash. Occurred. Like a tribute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the first spy satellite, do you realize that we had 12 that didn't work? Twelve launches that were unsuccessful, in secret. Uh. The 13th one worked, but it got them more data about what was going on in the Soviet Union than all of the U-2 flights that occurred before that. Wow. One satellite did that. And we kept launching them. And it was extraordinarily important because we discovered that the Russians didn't have a whole bunch of missile launch sites, which we were worried about. Yeah. Uh, you know, and we, we were really, we underestimated the Russians. A lot of people don't realize that, uh, General, uh, the guy who headed the Manhattan Project, General Groves, in 48 said it, it would take the Russians eight years to get to their first atomic bomb explosion. Mm -hmm. It, it happened in 49, one year later. Oh, wow. You know, dumb peasants. Uh, the most scary thing, I've ever seen in an archive were some minutes of National Security Council meetings where it was announced in like 1951 that the Russians had made more progress in the development of nuclear weapons and methods for delivering them because they considered, well, the Russians don't have any big airplanes to drop bombs on us, so even if they get an atomic bomb, so what? They can't reach us. Well, they had kept the B-29 that was there on some kind of a mission. Uh, and they duplicated it many times over. You call it back engineering, call it whatever you want. And so we were caught with our pants down. Do you remember they had people whose job it was to stand on tall buildings and keep their eyes open for Russian airplanes? <laughs> no, that's a little before my time. Well, that was before we had a radar system around. What do you need radar for? There's nothing to worry about. Uh, yeah, we, 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 hey, I just saw an airplane. What kind is it? Well, I don't know. Let's check with Joe. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, and then we put in the do line. We did all kinds of other things. But uh, we were not in good shape mm. because of ignorance and arrogance. And the ignorance and arrogance is, is a perfect example of what's wrong with the astronomical community's notion about flying saucers. Well, they're interested in what's going on in the universe out there. Of course they would know about it. And if aliens were coming, they'd want to talk to them. Uh, you know, that's the attitude. And uh, nobody could keep any secrets from us. Yeah. And also, the, you can't get here from there. 
And that really bugs me. I know, I know. Uh, because it's nonsense. You know, uh, the smallest thing you can use for electronics is a vacuum tube, right? <laughs> it's just Sorry. yeah. It's like it's people don't want to people don't want to use their imagination. Uh, they'd rather just be surprised by 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 things. It's sad. It's really uh, it's sad. Hey kids, I heard on the news that an airline pilot spotted Santa's sled on its way in from New York. Oh. 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 <laughs> you serious, Clark? It's the Banal of America Audio Holiday Special, featuring Stanton Friedman. Happy Holidays! It's the one night of the year when we all act a little nicer, we, we, we smile a little easier, we, 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 we share a little more. For a couple of hours out of the whole year, we are the people that we always hoped we would be. Now, in terms of, you've talked at length for many, many years about the Cosmic Watergate. How far down do you take this? Uh, like, how, how, there's a lot of different camps, you know. Some people think the government's working with ETs or had worked with them. Other people think the government's, like, under the ETs' thumb. Other people think the government doesn't know anything about it. It's trying to figure it all out. So, I mean, having looked at this for all these years, how deep is this Cosmic Watergate? What's the state of it, do you think, in your opinion? Well, I, I think that, the top dogs in the intelligence community have an idea what's going on. But it doesn't get much deeper than that, I think. Uh, you know, you can go back to the, the famous Twining memo, uh, in which he says flying saucers are real and so forth, and wouldn't it be nice if we had wreckage or something like that? Hmm. And when you look at the list of people who were at the meeting where he said that, it was clear they wouldn't have all have had a clearance. People don't understand the distinction between secret and top secret and top secret code word and the need to know in there someplace. I've got people who tell me, look, if you got a top secret clearance, you get to see everything that's top secret, right? No, yeah. not at all. Uh, there's a little thing like need to know. And, that's what protects secrets. It's not, why can't they tell us? We know they, we don't want the Russians to know. Because you can't tell the public without the Russians knowing. They read newspapers. They listen to you on the radio. Uh, you know, there's no way to keep your enemies from knowing what's going on if you go public with it. And people don't seem to understand that. Yeah. Uh, now, I think that uh, there are plenty of people who know what's going on, because, look, we've had, uh, you know, more than 60 years, and certainly uh, there are people. But there's another thing, too. There was a strong tradition of doing what you're supposed to do to keep secrets, loose lip sync ships, you know, and all yeah. that stuff. And the Vietnam War sort of uh, took that out of the way a little bit. You know, you trusted the government. Uh, in 47. That's what the government had going for it when it, it got rid of the Roswell story real quick. If the government said so, it was true. After all, we just beat this terrible Hitler and, you know. Yeah, exactly. We were on a roll. Yeah. Yeah. If they said so, it's true. And now you realize, well, that's not so. But there are an awful lot of people that you don't want to know. And, you know, it's like there was a big fuss in the 70s about, gee, 400 journalists had a connection with the CIA. 
And there was huge uh, furor, you know, the church committee. And if there's anybody listening who can tell me whether Phil Klass was uh, one of the people that the CIA worked with, I'd sure like to hear about it. Well, it would help explain. It's like people get angry at me for saying that I believe that Dr. Donald Menzel really was a member of MJ-12. Once I found out that he had done all kinds of highly classified work, which nobody knew until I went to Harvard and got permission to see his papers and... Holy cow, he was a world-class cryptographer. He was highly connected for decades with the NSA. And people look at me, but then, you know, when you stop to think about it, he had written science fiction. He was the perfect front man. His early book was translated into Russian. And you wonder why. Yeah, that's weird. You know, and he's, uh, Menzel was, uh, a pretty special guy. I didn't like him while he was alive. I wasn't prejudiced to be on his side. How could he be part of it? How could, you know, it's a phony document. It says Donald Menzel was a member of this group. When you start looking more carefully, son of a gun. Yeah, yeah. He belonged. That's so good. I don't, I think it, the, there, there are many people who know, but mm. it's not a large percentage of the people in government or in the military. Uh, and, you know, I, I still don't have a good handle on what Snowden. I mean, he's mentioned UFOs, I guess, but uh, I don't know. Why would he have been cleared for that? Right, right, unless it's the kind of thing where when you're in the guts of the computer system, if you're one of those IT guys, you can look at stuff like a Gary McKinnon type uh, if you're, yeah. you know, trained like that. Now, you, you earlier mentioned here that, um, and you've said it before, obviously, in the past, that you, you don't think the government should tell people everything. What no. if, if you had your druthers... Um, honestly, I think if, I think if we both had our drubbers, we'd rather figure it all out ourselves and not need the government. But if the government, you know, if, if the government came to you and they were like, all right, what do you want to know? What do you think we should tell people? What, what would that be? Well, I think the only way to tell people is if you've got a, a contingency plan. Okay. Uh, yes, planet Earth, uh, the, the top six nations have gotten together and decided that you're ready to know that aliens are visiting the planet, and we have scheduled international conferences to deal with the religious, psychological, economic, uh, geographical, if you will, uh, aspects of that problem. Because, you know, I can't imagine a galactic federation allowing admission from individual uh, nation-states, countries, yes. Just the UN doesn't allow cities to apply for membership. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, as far as I know. So who speaks for planet Earth? Who do you pay the royalties for? Who's collecting the tolls at the bridge, you know? Yeah. Uh, And how do we go from a planet where you got one country over here with 1.3 billion people, which, as I understand it, just took over from the United States as the top economic country in the world, total amount of business activity, if you will. Yeah. Uh, how do we get ourselves to where we can work together and cut out that trillion dollars we're spending this year on things military? And religion is not a trivial question right now. I mean, look at uh, ISIS. Look at the Taliban. These are basically religiously based groups. Yeah. Uh and it's nice to say, well, let's be nice, nice together, folks. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, how do you do that? We don't know how to do that. Uh, we don't. We don't know how to feed the starving. Look what's happening in Syria. How long has that been going on? Uh, you know, it's not a, a small group of people. Uh, you know, a few dozen who are being nasty. Hmm. Uh, and so, uh, if, if we say that aliens are visiting, uh, I think we need to have a plan from several countries. Where do we go from here? Yeah. And, you know, think back to desegregation in the South. The places that were most successful did it one year at a time with the schools. This year it's first grade. Next year it's first and second grade. Hmm. You know, uh, and in those places where the leaders said, uh, our people aren't going to go for this, that's where they had the problems. Right. Where people said, well, we don't like this, but it's the law of the land, and we will do our best to meet with the law of the land. And they didn't have so many problems. The problem still isn't solved. I'm not implying that we don't have any uh, racist notions or anything like that. Oh, God, yeah, that's a whole other, yeah. (laughs) You need to figure out a way to get from point A to point B. And there are some uh, barricades in the way. Uh, What what are all these companies that are building uh, war equipment going to do? The world is spending a trillion dollars this year. That's a lot of jobs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a strange way to look at it, maybe. Well, you mean that's more important than peace? Well, apparently. You know, strange way it is almost because so they think that way because uh, it's sort of like it's like the too big to fail idea where it's like if we got rid of all the yeah. bombs and then we wouldn't have any jobs and the economy would collapse. It's like we're, we're caught in a real catch-22 here uh, <laughs> at a speed. Yeah. And we have a problem in Canada right now. The price of oil is going through the floor. And they're going to be laying off thousands of people up in Alberta. Yeah, yeah. And the rest of us say, hey, great, the price of gas has gone down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But think of it that way, yeah. There are going to be some losers. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's rough. Now, earlier we talked about, Soto, I got your, your thoughts on when you thought we came closest to disclosure, but... Again, having been in this field for, for almost 50 years, I guess take me through, I guess, your thoughts on sort of the ebb and flow of all this. Do you think there was a time when things were really going well as far as the research field goes, as far as ufology goes, where you think, you know, we're on the right track? Because I know it's, it, I don't think it's, it has, obviously hasn't been a, a straight line upwards. It's been, no. you know, it's had its ups and downs. So I guess take me through your, reflect a little bit on, on sort of the evolution of this field well, uh, as you've seen it. There, uh, I think what we're unfortunately seeing is that the old timers are getting older, but there aren't so many people replacing them. Uh, and that is of concern to me. Uh, you know, we're, we're losing the big people. And I, I, there are occasional, I see people like John Greenwald, uh, who's been emceeing the MUFON conference. And he's a young man. And he's made more Freedom of Information Act requests than you can shake a stick at. Yes. So I'm glad to see that. But we need more John Greenwalds. And also I find that even in MUFON, uh, there are still people who don't want to deal with the abduction phenomena. Like, uh, you know, it reminds me of Major Kehoe. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there are alien vehicles, but they don't have anybody on board. We don't want to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the attitude. Right, right. You know. Uh, and the sphere of ridicule, I, I just wrote an article, I guess it'll be my next column, uh, about 
fear of ridicule having to do with the MJ-12 and huh. other things, but we've got to get over the fear. We in ufology, well, if we talk about it, we're going to get a rough time. I say that's nonsense. People react the way they think other people expect them to react. Don't be defensive. Tell them like it is. It's okay. I've never had an egg thrown at me. 700 lectures. I mean, exactly. or an RNG either for that matter. <laughs> exactly. Don't be afraid to tell people. Yeah, that's the, that's the truth, man. That's the absolute truth. Have facts in hand before putting mouth in gear is a good rule. <laughs> of course, of course. Well, you, you, you sort of, you talked a little bit about this just now, but I mean, Back in the day, there was the, the NICAPs, the APROs. Move On was a much stronger organization back then. Um, do you think that, that it's better or worse for ufology that there isn't this sort of oversight uh, that these organizations provided, you know? Because it seems like, you know, we don't have necessarily peer review in ufology at all, but at least no. back then there was a, some kind of semblance of peer review. Now it's like a, the wild, wild west as far as uh, research goes. Yeah. I, I agree with that, and we need a consolidation of thinking about what's acceptable research. You know, as a scientist, if I want to publish an article about nuclear things, I had to get approved of my company, for one thing, uh, before the company name could go on a paper. And then you had to, it had to be peer-reviewed. And so you knew you had to go through all that sort of stuff. So you had to be careful. Back up what you say. You know, even if you don't publish all the evidence, be ready to so that you can respond if a critic, a reviewer says, well, wait a minute, I don't see why you came to this conclusion. And papers get revised. But in ufology, uh, it doesn't seem to be like that. Uh, and I admire what Roger Marsh is doing as editor of the MUFON Journal, and it's getting fancier, you know, hmm. which is nice. Color pictures and more data and so forth. Right. But we do, uh, we do need more standards. We do need more places where you can give a, a refereed paper. Uh, and also, how do we get people to stop believing that everything on the internet is true? Oh God, that's just a that's a bigger problem than you and I can solve. Well, yeah, I'm just saying that that's one of the difficulties. Well, I read it on the internet. Uh, the internet doesn't care what's true. You know, you can look at YouTube. You can find any viewpoint you want. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a, it's a it's a you know I, I mentioned earlier. I felt like I I was getting kind of optimistic in a sense because there is this sort of psychological shift that people are moving more towards just accepting and believing in UFOs, but at the same time. Society also seems to be getting dumbed down, at least the American society, where yes. you get people that believe all kinds of stuff. So it's 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 a mess. <laughs> yes, I agree, and uh, I, I'm not predicting when it's going to end or how it's going to end. It would be nice if the Pope and other religious leaders got together mm -hmm. and decided to take us in. There's a new book out by Dr. Weintraub. Yeah, Vanderbilt University, and I've read the book, I've written a column about it, uh, and he looks how I hadn't, frankly, I didn't wasn't aware that many different religious groups had talked years ago about whether the, you know, there are extraterrestrials out there, and then does our God serve them, uh, did Jesus die for them, questions like that. Mm. 
the trouble with Weintraub's book, though, is uh, he doesn't talk about UFOs. He sort of dismisses them out of hand. Uh, and I think that's a mistake. Yeah, clearly. I mean, it's typical. But, I mean, he's, he's an accredited academic. And, I mean, thank goodness people like Dr. Don Dondery, who's retired from uh, McGill University in Montreal, has written a good book about abductions. Hmm. He's a psychologist, and he's a, he's a consultant as well, even after retiring. But he was willing to take a stand, and many years ago he had guts enough to introduce me when I spoke at McGill. Darn few professors introduced me over the years. Yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting. I'll have to check out his stuff. Um, now, at the, at the end of the day, if you... Somebody once asked in the listener questions part, if you could ask the president anything, uh, I'm going to extend that, I guess, to just if you if you could have the answer to one question, you know, regardless of the source, the president, the government, ETs themselves, God himself, you know, what would it be? Uh, you know, what one question really kind of nagged at you over the years that you'd really like an answer to? Where is this all heading? Do civilizations just come and go and that's the way it is? Or do they ever settle down where there may be a whole galactic network and neighborhood that's peaceful? If anybody solved the problems of thinking beings living together at peace, is there some genetic component to why we're so nasty to each other? I mean, I used to laughingly say maybe this is the devil's island of this corner of the galaxy, and the reason we're so nasty to each other is they dumped all the bad boys and girls here, so we got <laughs> genetic uh, pre pretense of, you know, how we're supposed to be. Yeah. I don't know. I would love to know that, because it seems a darn shame with as big a universe as it is, and with all those planets out there, surely some people have figured out a way to be decent toward each other, and... I'm thinking that one of the reasons they may be coming here is to study these crazy ones over here, you know. Yeah, the ones who still can't figure it out yet. Yeah, yeah. And it, it may, is there a gene for greed and hate? I, I don't know. <laughs> makes you wonder. Makes you wonder. Now, sort of another kind of like, like, like I said, this is the 10th year we've been doing this, so i got kind of the mind on the historical stuff. You know, um, I'm sure over the years... We'll do a two-part question because I kind of want a funny answer too. So, over the years, I'm sure you've just been just been swamped with people who come to your table. I know one guy who came to your table and talked to you for a half hour. Uh, that was me when I first ever interviewed you, and I was looking back on it recently, and I was like, "Oh my God!" I stand must think I was such a clown. He was trying to have a good time at the X conference, and I'm interviewing him at this table. So, I, <laughs> I really look back on that and appreciate your patience with me uh, at the time. So, over the years, you've been approached by all sorts of people at at these conferences and events and, and, you know, even through email and phone calls. You know, what's the weirdest, funniest, strangest thing you've ever heard? And what's, have you ever gotten sort of like, what's the best sort of confirmation about all this that you've heard? Where you're like, oh, wow, that was, you know, you don't have to tell me who it was, but it's like maybe maybe a former vice president called you and said, hey, you're on the right track. You know, hopefully it wasn't Dan Quayle, but, you know, you know what I'm saying. Maybe... <laughs> You know, I haven't heard his name in a long time. Well, I tried to come up with the most ridiculous one I could, but uh, yeah. So there's the two things. Well, you know, what's the strangest, funniest, weirdest one, and and you know, what's the most uh, enlightening or promising one? Well, one phone call that I still recall is a guy calls me. I don't know who he is, but that's that's common. 
his first question was, how come you're still alive? <laughs> and I, I said, well, I don't, don't understand the question. Well, you keep saying the government's covering things up. You'd think they would have taken you out by now. And I had to think about that for a minute. Well, I don't worry about it. I, at that time, I had a live answering service, so anybody wanted to know how to reach me, no matter where I was, the answering service knew what room I was staying in and which hotel and would give out the phone number because I want to stay in touch, you know. I, I said, well, I think it's because anybody who's listened to me knows that I respect security, that uh, I don't believe everything needs to be out on the table, and I think that, uh, you know, uh, I'm doing my share so that when the time big date comes, and I didn't hazard a guess as to when that might be, thank goodness, <laughs> uh, we'll be ready for it. And, you know, I, I still think that's a reasonable answer, but I did have one occasion in the Southwest. After a lecture at a college, a guy comes up to me, and he invites me over to his house. He's got something he wants to talk to me about, but he thinks it would be better off there, not far from the campus. Yeah. And so we go over there, and he tells me that um, they are keeping, the agencies are keeping track of me, and, you know, you're doing okay so far. <laughs> uh, and uh, Gee, thanks. Nothing to worry about, but... Uh, uh, you know, it's okay. But the fact that they were monitoring me uh, was interesting to me. Mm. Uh, and, well, uh, you know, there's the crazy FBI. I, uh, I probably told this story, uh, but I filed under Freedom of Information for my files from the FBI and the CIA many years ago. Right, right. We gave them all the background, you know, the date of birth, place of birth, parents' names, you know, all that sort of stuff. So there could be, and I mentioned that I'd had a security clearance for 14 years. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, I wrote both agencies at the same time. I hear first from the FBI. Uh, sorry, we don't have a file on you. Well, I knew they were lying because my clearance had been renewed three times, I guess. And I had friends say, Stan, how come the FBI is asking about you? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that made me angry. And then I heard from, I mean, I know he was lying. Then I heard from the CIA. I mean, you know, I don't, my name is not John Smith. Stanton Terry Friedman is not a common name. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Born on my birthday, et cetera. Uh, and then I hear from the CIA, all we have on you is a negative name check request from the FBI. <laughs> they take a copy of it. It's a little squib of paper. Uh, and so I sent a copy to the FBI, and I was trying to be polite. It was difficult. <laughs> I, was trying. I can imagine, yeah. Uh, could you please recheck your files? Because this is what I got from the CIA, and it would appear that you do have a file on me. Okay, get a fairly prompt response. Uh, we have rechecked our files and find we do have a file on you. However, it's classified. Okay, I send them back saying, I'd like to know the size of the file and the level of classification. Sorry, but that information is classified too. So, you know, are they gathering data on people? I guess they are. I mean, I haven't smuggled any diamonds or anything like that. And... uh I've got a passport which reveals, you know, they can check where you've traveled and all that sort of stuff. Right, right. 
Uh, so, you know, that was weird. And I do, again, to go after those files and see what they say now. Uh, and also, uh, I'm still curious. I can understand Don Menzel, believe it or not. Yeah. Because he had a high, very high level security clearance. He was working uh, with NSA longer than anybody else, uh, and he was dead when I found this out, so there's no way to go directly to him. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but uh, then I look at Phil Klaus. Perfect guy to be working with the CIA. He could travel widely. Uh, he wasn't married until he was 60. Uh, he was a fast typist. He could go to conferences and stuff like that. Uh, was he an agent for the CIA? Uh, you know, traveling around, there were 400 journalists who were. He was based in Washington, perfect place. And uh, that's what I'd like to know. Yeah. Uh, not not just because he 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 was terrible to uh, Jim McDonald. Uh, you know, at least he paid me when I proved he was totally wrong about yeah, yeah. <laughs> typeface and stuff like that. But uh, what was the game he was playing? In other words, why so vehemently nasty? And uh, he was too smart not to know that he wasn't telling the truth. You know yeah. what I mean? If he was stupid, that's one thing. But he wasn't stupid. And so, uh, and I was glad I caught him and... and you know, people really laugh when I show his check to me for for a thousand dollars for proving him wrong about the typeface on no. a, you know on a document, a stupid thing. But well, you know, he, he exemplifies the strange attitudes. He had never been before or after this at the Eisenhower Library, and yet he's claiming that the typeface is wrong because he had nine samples of. Elite type, and the document in question is done in the large PICA type. Right, right, right. So they have two hundred had two hundred fifty thousand pages of NSC material there, and he's trying to say they were all done with the same typewriter. That that doesn't compute, you know. Well, it's the kind of thing they just throw out there to slow you down. I feel bad because I feel like sometimes I appreciate what you do to to to, to debunk the debunkers, but at the same time, it's like oh, I wish. You know, I wonder what else, what, what you could have been doing in the meantime instead of doing well, that. Well, that's true. <laughs> you know, it's frustrating. Like, we need you to, we need you to destroy these people. Yes, we need you to, to destroy their arguments. But at the same time, it's like, stop, stop taking all the time away, time away from Stan so he can, so he can really well, get to the bottom right. of this. And I sometimes think about that, but I don't see a lot of other people doing the same thing. So. Well, that's the problem too. I feel a responsibility, if you will. If I've done the job, might as well let people People know. Mm. That's why, you know, one of the nice things about doing the monthly column for the MUFON Journal is that I can say my piece. Yeah. And they've never censored me. They've never uh, said, oh, we don't want you to talk about that, Stan. <laughs> and I'm, I've been gratified that some people said it's the first thing they read in the MUFON Journal. You know, <laughs> what's Freeman complaining about that? Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm lucky. You're you're amazing, man. You are. You are. Uh, you're one of a kind, Stan. You know that. Um, now, w before we set up the whole 
conversation a couple of weeks ago. I asked you uh, to look into this French UFO conference that they had uh, over the summer. I think it was when you were when you were uh, yeah. in ill health. Uh, so you probably didn't hear about it at the time. And I know Jacques Vallée kind of emerged and, and produced a paper there, and and it was seemed like it's a, it was a pretty high profile sort of event in within the within sort of the I don't want to call it covert, but sort of the uh, the non the non media excitable uh, UFO yeah. research community. Let's say you know it was kind of it like was a, yeah that was probably the what? best best way to put it. So what do you, what do you think about this? You looked into it. Um, you know what's your takeaway from all that? Well, I think we're moving in the right direction with uh, cooperation between different countries. You know, France and Chile, for example, are working together with government approval. Hmm. Government approval, not just uh, individuals from either country. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. And I think the United States, frankly, is not leading the pack, if you want an honest appraisal. No, absolutely not. That's why it happened in France. Uh, yeah, we have to put on the faux disclosure event in D.C. on our own and pay Congress people to come. But but in France they have real scientific. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> but in France they have real scientific uh, conferences. Apparently, you know that's the weird part. Like no one in American ufology really knew anything about it until it all went down. It was kind of really uh, oddly put together. Yeah, uh, I, I didn't know either, and I don't know what that means. And. Uh, I'm not offended because I wasn't invited, because I couldn't have gone anyway, I don't think. <laughs> no, no, I think it was actually right around the time he had the heart attack, so even if yes. even if you were the star of the show, you would have missed it. So it doesn't, you know, it's yeah. all it's all water under the bridge anyway. Yeah, and I, I think the rest of the world is moving ahead, and it, not just in ufology, but in a number of other things. Uh, the United States' fusion work is crummy. Uh uh, we've got a bunch of ancient academics and fossilized physicists and so forth who are standing in the way, I think. Uh, you know, new ideas, Max Planck said it a long time ago, a great German physicist, new ideas come to be accepted not because their opponents come to believe in them, but because a new generation grows up that's accustomed to them. That's right. That's what happened with the UFO phenomenon, I think. Yes. Yes, and how many uh, new PhDs have been done? How many courses are being taught across the country? Well, they have been in the past. There's more than a dozen PhD theses out there, but uh, the, the guys in academia just aren't aren't doing their share. Yeah, they're nasty, noisy negativists, uh, and that's not helping anything. Hmm. Now, I, I'm i not sure if I ever asked you about uh, this guy before, but I've always been really intrigued and a huge fan of his work. Uh, we, I mentioned him just now, Jacques Vallée, and he seems like he's become sort of this this almost like mythical figure within ufology. Uh, he's really sort of become this enigmatic, uh, mysterious in a lot of ways, uh, but he was also a huge player uh, back in the day. Oh, yeah. Um, now he's kind of like a recluse. Um, what's your what's your take on him and his work and and his contributions to the field? Because I think he really is a titan that that uh, by by his own decision to to step away from all this kind of uh, well, that's true. Yeah, and uh, I kind of appreciate Jacques more as I get older, in the sense that I thought he was close to Heineck and uh, not willing to stick his neck out and so forth. But then we were both at that. Uh, that meeting, if you will, in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and he was friendly there. He was a presenter, and I've had some conversations with him, 
and I expect there will be more. Uh, he's, I like him. I hmm. think he's had guts and enough to stick his neck out. And even though I don't agree on everything, you see, our backgrounds are different. I worked in the black, not black world, it wasn't a black world, but in the classified world. Yes. And in high technology. And that was one thing I couldn't get uh, Heineck to do, was to look at advanced technology for interstellar travel. Uh, he, he used to use the totally false analogy that if you look at the distance from the Earth to the moon, the uh, uh, nearest star is, you know, 16 miles. If that's the thickness of a playing card, you got 16 miles of playing cards. And that's looking at things linearly. Yeah. And space travel doesn't work linearly. Uh, if you could double your velocity at burnout when you're on your way to the moon, you'd get there 20 times faster. Because the force that gets you there is the difference between what's pushing you up and what's pulling you down. And there's a little difference, otherwise you wouldn't move. Uh, you know, it's like profit in a business. Uh, if your costs are 48% and your sales are 52%, there's a 4% margin. A little difference in the one makes a big difference in the difference. Exactly. Uh, you know, and you got to be aware of that. But anyway, uh, I think Jacques is more open than that. In other words, in, in spite of the fact that his training was in astronomy. Yeah. But he was a persistent uh, researcher, did a lot of fine early work. I don't know when his last book was written, but mine certainly is more recent than his last one. <laughs> <laughs> well, he did have a book a few years ago about uh, ancient ancient UFO reports. So Yes, with somebody else. Mm. I can't recall. Mm. And they, it was a pretty good collection, actually. I liked it. It didn't get a lot of attention, I don't think. But uh, uh, I consider him a scientific individual in his outlook, more so than most. Absolutely, yeah. I think he certainly made a major contribution to the field. And, uh, you know, we, we need a, a second, a third generation of uh, valets. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That's, yeah, that goes without saying. And we need a second and third generation Stan Friedman's as well. So, you know, it's, uh, I put you two guys as my, my top two all time. You follow just, uh, you know, but we've had the argument before you and I. I know you're a James McDonald fan, so I, yes, I, I won't make the case for you being the greatest of all time to you. So, <laughs> I do it to plenty of others. Trust me, all the time. I, I argue that you are the best of all time. So, uh, as I got the biggest mouth, yes. <laughs> I'm telling you, Stan, I think that you made the greatest contribution to the overall, uh, you know, understanding and, and people, people really, you, you've, you've really driven this, this change more than anybody else that's ever done this, so I really think so. Well, thank you. Um, you know, I kind of want to, as we're, we're sort of winding down here, I wanted to get a little more historical and kind of fun a little bit too, and just talk about, you know, obviously, you were behind the Roswell story, the breaking of the Roswell story, making this a part of the national uh, language. When when did you see the city of Roswell sort of embrace this UFO event? Because uh, clearly, like, back when you first heard about it, they, the people in Roswell, maybe some of them knew about it, but it certainly wasn't their claim to fame. Uh, no, and they were, the city was resistant to it. Walter Howe uh, grabbed the ball, the guy who put out the press release. He was a prominent man in town. And he was one of the founding fathers of the museum. And there was a period of time when the city fathers were not happy. You want us to be the uh, UFO capital of the world? What are you, crazy? 
Uh, and then the, the public started showing up. We had over 300 newsmen there, accredited newsmen for the 50th anniversary celebration. Yeah. And uh, suddenly they realized that uh, this was an attraction. And uh, a few years back when the museum was talking about moving a couple miles west of their present location, the city said, no, 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 you're on the end of Main Street. That's what anchors this whole town and stuff. They, they, <laughs> You know, yeah. suddenly they saw the light. And uh, what I'd really like to do is have another museum here in Fredericton. I'd give them all my papers, which would clear out three rooms of the house. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And uh, it would be a tourist attraction. Fredericton's about the same size as Roswell and is not close to any other cities. And uh, uh, I'm working on it. I got the mayor interested anyway. So that would be awesome. You should talk to Lauren Coleman. He's got a he's got the International Cryptozoology Museum down in Maine. So I've been there. Ah, nice. We see him. Yeah. Yeah. Did a nice did a nice job. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe there needs to be like an East Coast UFO museum. That'd be awesome. I'm all for it. Sounds good. Anybody Sounds out good. there with money? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> if there's anyone out there with money, contact us, please. <laughs> please. <laughs> so you think? So you're saying like around '97 or so, late '90s? That's when they kind of got on board with the uh, with the Roswell UFO home. Well, after '97, but that was the 50th, and there, there was the crowds there. And look, uh, give me another example. McMinnville, Oregon, has had, and I'm going to be there again in uh, May. Uh, Fifteen, I, I forget, was the fifteenth or the sixteenth conference. They were going to do. It was going to be a one event, you know, one time event. Fiftieth anniversary of the McMinnville photographs, the Trent photos, you know. Yeah. And it was so well attended, they thought they'd do it again, and they've been doing it every year since. And I was there last year. Great crowds, lovely parade, waving at the kids, you know, and brings in lots of people. Uh, and there's an exchange of views, and so. Uh, uh, there'll be several speakers this year. I wasn't the only one last year, and I won't be the only one this year. Kathleen Martin will be speaking, as a matter of fact. Nice, nice. And so uh, at least we'll have the abductions talked about instead of just ignored. And uh, there is no question that there is great interest in the subject. There's fear of ridicule. But when you look at all the people that go to Roswell from all over the world, you look at the size crowds that I've drawn, uh, you know, from Australia <laughs> to Saudi Arabia, if you will, yeah. uh, Israel, et cetera, uh, I, I think it's clear that there is public interest. People don't know quite what to make of it, but they wouldn't be turning out. I mean, Roswell's not an exciting town to visit. You know, yeah, and it's not exactly easy to get to either, right? you got to fly into a big city and then kind of drive out, right? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, well, you can fly into Roswell from... Oh, okay. But you got to get a puddle jumper, right, from like a regular airport? Well, yeah, yeah, you know, you got it. It's not a big play. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but I, I think uh, maybe we should get another museum here, one in the central part of the country, and we'll have... Uh, and. How about a conglomeration of UFO museums? Uh, that would do it. That sounds uh, good. Everybody putting out their own stuff about what they got, and uh, I'll make the circuit, you know, five <laughs> years. <laughs> Just thought of that. Anyway, no, I, I'm an optimist in the sense that the minds are more open. The old 
naysayers are, are gone or to a large extent. And they're being replaced by more open young people. Right. And if we can get people with their nose out of the computers, out of the Internet things, uh, that would be a big help. Good luck with that. I was just thinking, we get the East Coast Museum going, then you can be like one of these Las Vegas performers. You can just have the residency. Then people can just come to see you. Okay. That works better, right? You don't have to travel as much. Sure. <laughs> I'll do that. Um now, what's beyond the beyond this cool idea for the museum, which I'm totally behind? Let us know if we can do anything. Uh, you know, um, let us know because uh, we, we can rally the troops here and try and get some momentum behind that. Um, be, well, first, I guess as a sort of joking question, any future acting work uh, that we can look forward to? We got any guest appearances well, on uh, any TV shows or anything in, in light of the commercial? Uh, not really. I've had a very nice response to it. And I will be doing, I can't remember, there are a couple of uh, people that are going to be interviewing me, and uh, we'll, we'll just see. I don't think they're going to be asking me about pasta sauce, but, no, no, well, you know. Well, I said to you before, we got to get you, there was a movement afoot, but it, it didn't really catch fire yet. But maybe now that you've got your... Now that you've maybe now that you've made your your break in the uh, in the commercial, maybe we can get you on the Big Bang Theory because I think that is a great idea that uh, a lot of people are uh, have kind of mentioned before. But I'm all for it, and I kind of get a kick out of the show. So yeah, I'd love to be on that. If they can have Bill Nye on there, then damn it, you deserve to be on there, man. That's ridiculous. Yeah, Bill Nye, the science guy, he's a scientist like I'm a musician. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I've had a couple of close encounters with him, uh, Larry King and so forth. And my God, uh, anybody who can say the uh, the missiles were shut down because there was a short circuit uh, at uh, in the missile facility at Malmstrom is triply protected stuff. Yeah, yeah. I had a note from his ex-wife telling me he probably spent uh, at least ten minutes on the internet before he did the show. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. can I say? There are guys like that around. And what I'm also, one, one thing I am hoping to get to is to Washington to look at Carl Sagan's papers. Mm. Because somebody paid a lot of money to have them all boxed up and, uh, you know, arranged. Cataloged and whatever. Cataloged, yeah. And it's their Library of Congress, I guess. And uh, uh, I've been to 20 archives. I'd like to add a few more, but his papers are... I, I wonder if he's got the letters he and I exchanged. Uh, oh, that would be cool to look for, yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, like class... The, the, in the class papers at the American Philosophical Society Library, there is no Friedman file, even though we corresponded for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> the, the government probably came and took that away afterwards. <laughs> well, I didn't... I don't think he wanted people to know that he'd pay me that $1,000. <laughs> well, joke's on him. Yeah. Yeah, I saw well, just a sort of a frustrating note. I did see uh, I was gonna send this to you too. It's it's the kind of thing I saw and I was like, God damn it, we really need to like get it together here in ufology because the the uh, it was almost a, it was an annoying thing. That uh Dyson he posted a selfie from the White House. It was it was uh the president and Bill Nye. And I was like, oh, God, we really need to start winning this uh, PR war of, of ufology here. Cause, well, I didn't know. I hadn't heard about that. Oh, yeah, I'll send it to you. It was like, oh, okay. this, this guy shook my fist kind of like, you know, what, what, <laughs> what are we doing here? Well, I, I don't know what's going on, but I'm hoping that I'll be around to see more of it. 
uh, a year from now, and we'll do this again. Absolutely, yes. One year from now, we'll bring back listener questions, and we'll let the folks pepper you with uh, their inquiries. Okay. And uh, we'll just wrap it up here with, like, what's next for you, um, you know, beyond speaking engagements and stuff like that? You're working on any new books? I know you got the MUFON column. I'm going to do my annual just pleading here, begging the memoir. Just, uh, just please, uh, we, we really want it. The folks want a, want a story of how you got into this. And I like to, I look back on the conversations we've had. It's amazing because you kind of fill in the life <laughs> of Stan Freeman over the course of all these years that we've talked about well, this stuff. But there is talk of another book, Kathleen Martin and I. We've done two so far and we're talking about doing another one. I won't say about what, but, uh, and I, I think that would be useful. Uh, and remember that two of my books have been, uh, options have been signed for movies. That's right. So I could get very lucky. Uh, one is on Top Secret Magic. Uh, Magic Men would be the title. Mm-hmm. And that would be partly a, a bio. Uh, and the other one was about Captured, uh, Betty and Barney Hill, UFO Experience. That's right, yep. So, uh, it would be interesting if suddenly the movie industry wakes up again, and uh, I'd like to see that happen. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, keep us posted. Folks, of course, can find out more at stantonfriedman.com. And with all that said, Stan, I can't thank you enough. Ten years, it's just absolutely amazing. Like I said, I was I was getting excited about this last year, and, and uh, in, the late, in the days leading up to this, I was getting more and more excited. And just today, like ten minutes before the show, I was like, I just, I just want to get started. I just want to talk to him. This is so exciting. So, <laughs> I hope he doesn't have another heart attack. Oh, no, don't say that, man. Don't say that. Thank you, sir, for... Ten years of amazing conversations. I really do appreciate it. I sat down and added up all the time from the last nine shows we've done. Thirteen hours of conversations wow. you and I have done uh, over the last ten years. So just a, an amazing wealth of, uh, of, of awesome stuff. And I cannot thank you enough, sir. Happy holidays, and thank you once again. Uh, Hanukkah starts today, too. <laughs> I say happy holidays. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. We'll okay. talk to you next year. Take it easy. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. this program to bring you an important study from an undisclosed classified underground facility. We're with best-selling author, paranormal researcher, and nuclear physicist Stanton Friedman to ask which is his favorite flavor of Bon Jovi brand pasta sauce. The marinara, the garden style, or the arrabbiata? All of them. There you have it, Bon Jovi brand pasta sauces, the preferred pasta sauce of paranormal researchers and nuclear physicists everywhere. Taste the tradition.